Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast with Kareem Farah, Tony Rose Deannon, Kate Gaskell, and me, Zach Diamond. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hello and welcome to episode number 51 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Kareem Farah. I'm the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project. And I'm here for one of our Innovators in Education episodes. And I'm super, super excited. We have an awesome guest who is the CEO of Screencastify, a tool that so many of the listeners on this particular podcast probably use all the time. It's a tool that I have certainly used and find absolutely fabulous. And it's going to be a really, really interesting conversation. So before we get started, James, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thanks, Kareem. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to have you. So I want to start things off just by giving you an opportunity to tell listeners about you and your journey at Screencastify, especially because it's, I think, a little bit different than a lot of the the stories and the backgrounds of folks that come on this podcast. And just for listeners to know, a lot of this is going to be new information for me. I've gotten to know James quite a bit over the last few weeks, but a lot of the things we talk about today is going to be the first time we ever talk about these issues, which is always more fun for me as well. So James, go ahead and just tell folks your story, um, your background and your journey to getting to Screencastify. Yeah, you are right to say that it is a little bit of an uncommon uh, journey. So I, I actually started my career in in marketing and advertising. I was a, a strategist for a, a pretty old school creative agency, um, working with big brands for for four years uh, before I got a little disillusioned by that and and went and got my my MBA. And after I graduated, this is back in, in 2016, that is, is when I was introduced to Screencastify, which did exist in, in its earliest form back then. It was a Chrome extension, uh, kind of pre-revenue, pre, it was just kind of a, a free extension that, that had millions of users in the, in the Chrome web store. And it was brought to my attention through a, a, a friend of mine who, who knew the founder um, quite well. And I took a look at, at this piece of technology and I really jumped at the opportunity for a couple of reasons. The first was what I just mentioned. It clearly was solving a problem for a huge number of individuals. I didn't know much about who those individuals were at the time, but those numbers spoke for themselves. Um, but more powerfully, the thing that attracted me to Screencastify was the emotion that I saw when I Googled it and when I went on Twitter and tried to learn more about this tool. You could just, I mean, you can you know, still do it today, but back then you could, you could Google Screencastify, you could go on Twitter and you just saw dozens and dozens and dozens of tweets about how much people love this tool, how it's solving an incredible problem for them, how it's so easy, how they couldn't live without it. And you realize like, okay, I've been scrolling and scrolling and I'm only at like yesterday on Twitter. It was really incredible to see the volume. And so there was clearly just something special happening. Um, to be honest with you, when I got started, like on day one, I, I didn't know who these people were or what problem exactly it was solving. I knew that Screencastify was a very easy to use, 
very reliable tool to make very quick videos and get them in front of your audience quickly. But I didn't realize exactly what problem I was solving, as, as I mentioned. And it, it took a few weeks. I spoke with users. I did some research. I kind of tried to immerse myself in, in what was happening. And it quickly became apparent what type of problem this was solving for educators around the world, somewhat accidentally, right? Um, as, as you mentioned, Kareem, I don't have an education background and the founder does not have an education background. It was purely that educators found Screencastify and, and not the other way around. And it didn't take long once I, once I recognized what, what Screencastify, Screencastify's role in, in the practice of, of asynchronous video in the classroom and what it could do to help educators do more. Uh, it, it didn't take long to intentionally focus this company um, on, on delivering the product for K through 12 educators. And, and we made a de- that deliberate effort to start building the product and the messaging and the brand for educators. Um, it was not easy at first um, because, again, neither of us knew what it was like to set foot in a classroom and stand in front of 30, 12-year-olds. Um, and it quickly became clear to me that we couldn't fake it either. Um, and so mm-hmm. without any kind of delusions of understanding what it was like to be a teacher, the only thing that we could do was listen to the people using the product and really kind of understand the unique problems and the unique constraints that educators face that I still to this day believe that no other profession in the world faces um, and just try to empathize. And so a ton of the features that educators love today were, just came from them. Um, we never would have built a Google Drive integration. We never would have removed some features that were just adding too much clutter, but added way more functionality that weren't really necessary for quick instructional videos. Um, Screencastify was built truly by our initial community of, of educators. You know, it's a fascinating story, A, because like, it, it's just kind of fascinating that the tool wasn't built for educators. I've said this now to like five different people in the past week or so, and every single time people are like, so what was it for? Um, it's like a really interesting concept. And I, as as a avid screencaster to help just like run our own organization, certainly see the value in screencasting outside of the K-12 space. But certainly having been an educator that leveraged the tool quite frequently, I'm acutely aware of just how powerful it is in the classroom. And one thing I love about the story is your all's appreciation for the educator and just how unique the educator's experience is. You know, one of the things that we often talk about at the Modern Classrooms Project is like you really can't scale things unless you provide educators with customization. Like if you just tell an educator that they have to use something in a very specific way, deliver an instructional approach in a very specific way, every single time, and I was on the receiving end end of this for years, and now I'm on the sort of delivery side, every time educators are going to say, hey, that doesn't work with my unique set of constraints in my community. And it's so cool that you all as sort of outsiders of the K-12 space quickly realized like you cannot fake anything in front of an educator. They are like the greatest detectors of bull 
possible, um, which makes building products that really work effectively for teachers probably very difficult. Can you, James, speak a little bit more to how you actually gathered that feedback from teachers? I think one of the most interesting and sometimes challenging things to understand about how organizations at your scale do that effectively? Because there's just so many users, as you said, millions. Like what, what approaches did you all take to make sure that you were hearing the voices of educators? Well, it's a great question. Uh, one of the things that we have always been careful to do is not give too much weight to our power users. I think, um, you know, I, I think that there are, are some products and pieces of software where the power users do drive the, the, you know, evolution and improvement of the product. They are often using it the way that quote unquote, it's intended to be used. But I think that if you are building a product for everyone in a particular category, you can't cater to the power users because they're using it in a way that isn't, it's probably, you know, the top 5% most advanced ways to use a particular product. And so we are always very, very careful to speak to the educators that actually represent the distribution of how people are using Screencastify. So I, I think that in many ways, the voice of a teacher that uses Screencastify twice a year is, is as valuable, in some cases more valuable than someone that uses it every day. The person that uses it every day isn't really going to be able to as easily find some, for example, like really damaging user experience flaws, right? Because they've just kind of powered through it and gotten used to it. Whereas it might be stopping someone that's using it, like I said, twice a year from, uh, from using it more often. So I think that, um, I, I think that that's one of the, the, and again, I wouldn't recommend that for every um, product manager of a, of a software company or even an ed tech company. But, but I think if, if, if you're, you're building for everybody, then you have to listen to everybody. It's such an interesting point. It actually reminds me of the classroom a lot because it's very interesting to hear this idea of don't sort of over listen to a small subset of users in the classroom. It can be really easy to just like be too too attracted to the voices of the the students that are maybe the loudest, for example, or the students that are flying through content the most comfortably. And that's not actually all that productive in understanding the effectiveness of an instructional approach. And oftentimes can really throw off some really powerful innovation because you're focused on a small subset that happens to capture your attention. Well, I know I completely agree. It's, it's the, the, the line to the, the parallels to the classroom are, are super clear, right? It's if, you know, the same five students are answering all your questions correctly, you're going to think that kind of everyone does. Exactly. And everyone's on the same page. You know, um, what, one thing that I, I often tell my, my product team is that it's way harder to remove a feature than add one. And I'm most proud of, of my, my, the product team when they're able to remove something and make something simpler. Uh, it's not always easy. I, rem- I remember, you know, if you actually look at, at videos or images of Screencastify's user experience or our main recording control panel from four or five years ago, there were like 30 more options you could control the frame rate. You could control the resolution. You had actually a ton more recording options. 
um, which made sense, I, I guess, on the surface. But then we realized, like, this is intimidating most people and we need to rip it out. And it wasn't easy because right? we heard from people saying, hey, I have so-and-so way of using Screencastify where I need it to be a lower resolution or a higher frame rate or, or, or what, what it might be. And we might have lost some of those people to, to more um, kind of more heavyweight solutions. But that was a, a trade-off that we had to make if we were going to get the reach that we wanted to in the classroom. It's so interesting you say that because I have spent many a day meeting with teachers and delivering presentations in PDs where I talk about this idea of cutting the fat of the tool because educators oftentimes get incredibly frustrated when, and I was in the same boat, when you get exposed to five different tools, oftentimes ed tech tools, they all have like 80 different functions and you have an entire group of students and like a curriculum that you got to get through. And it's like, I don't have the time to synthesize how I'm going to leverage every single element of each of these components of this tech tool. But I am going to figure out how to use the core component. This often happens with learning management systems. Like you can open up some of these learning management systems and you open up the dashboard and just like look at the optionality. And I swear there's like literally 50 different things that you could like import in and create and structures you can define and all that good stuff. And I always told educators like pick the tools you're going to use, be very clear about how you're going to use it and then stick with it and stay consistent because otherwise you're going to panic and then none of the tools are going to get implemented with fidelity. And it's fascinating that you all saw the exact same progression play out because you had a tool that intuitively it's like, why wouldn't we add more very cool bells and whistles that allow you to do more creative things? But naturally, when you're catering to a community of people where the much more complicated exercise is actually figuring out how to get to know a student, inspire them and get them to understand a skill in a really crisp way, they don't have the time to spend you know, five, seven, 10 hours trying to figure out how to adjust resolution and record in a different way. And I hear you say that, Kareem, about trimming the fat, and it's kind of a shame like because I, I don't think that that's your job or a teacher's job. I think that's our job to trim the fat. And, and you guys, you all do that quite beautifully. And this is not um, me just like giving a big endorsement on Screencastify, but the, the most consistent thing we hear about Screencastify is its ease of use, right? It's why people are so quick to jumping on it. So I think that the work you all have clearly done over time to, to kind of trim it so that it's really smooth makes it such a digestible and easy product. Because ultimately, as you know, like the creation of an instructional video should be less about how hard it is to navigate the recording tool and a whole lot more about what goes in that video and how do you make sure it's nine minutes or under ideally six and animated interactive. So the easier you can make it, the better. So I think that's, that's a fabulous insight. Um, and it, I can imagine being extremely difficult to cut like functionality, especially when the functionality works. Um, I'm sure that exercise is exhausting and sometimes feels like taking one step forward and two steps backwards, but I think it's a, clearly a great use of your all's time. So I appreciate you all doing that. Tell me a little bit, so you all have built this incredible product, um, and just to clarify, what was the intention of Screencastify when the founders created it? Was there a specific like industry that was being targeted that wasn't ed, or was it just like, hey, it seems logical that it would be cool to record your screen? Yeah, no, it was actually just a technical insight. So it was Manu, our, our founder, recognizing that an update to Google Chrome back in, I believe, 2013 would theoretically allow a Chrome extension to um, access APIs that 
public APIs that, that would allow you to record a user's screen and then do whatever you'd like with that, with that media file. And so it was driven by a technical opportunity. And I, I think that the, the insight was as simple as making a quick, quick screen, screen video sounds like it should be simple, but it is not. You have to download bulky software. You have to pay $400 for a license. And then when it updates, you don't get the new features unless you pay again. You have to have the right operating system, a powerful device. And you have to be basically a professional video editor to understand how to use it once you're up and running. And there's got to be an overserved population. Those people who just don't need that, they need an entry-level version. They don't care as much about things like professional quality and you know some bells and whistles. There's got to be people out there who, who need this. Um, again, not clear who those are back then, who those people are, uh, but, but let's just make this so much simpler and see what happens. That was really it. I've, I I think that's fascinating because it is sort of intuitive, right? Like we do things on a computer and it's be helpful sometimes to share why, even if you don't know how powerful that is from the education sector. But man, it's, it's such an amazing skill for teachers. And, and just like you said, I mean, I actually met a lot of educators in the early stages of sort of when screencasting was just becoming a thing. I think Khan Academy was starting to, to get a fair amount of you know, attention. So the idea of instructional videos was slowly accelerating, but it was just so intimidating for folks. Like it was, it was really just an art of a very small few. Um, and it made it so that the innovation that can happen as a result of eliminating live lectures and truly empowering kids to be able to access content anywhere at any time, it just made it feel inaccessible to the vast majority of educators. So simplifying that process, I mean, and I tell folks, I was that person. I was skeptical and confused by it. The first time an educator came to me and said, Hey, I build instructional videos. I actually remember they had like, um, they built like a stand out of like wood. And then they had a little like document camera that was like pointed down. And then they had a whiteboard on their table and they would write in the whiteboard with their hand and just record their hand and the whiteboard as they solved math problems. And I looked at that and I was like, that's not happening. Um, I got to go. So I, I remember like seeing how other educators were trying to build videos and it just felt like so much work and so challenging and so difficult to get off the ground. So it's kind of amazing how quickly it, the ease of use is, is now to build these videos and it makes it so much more digestible. And, and like you said, it allows folk, allows you all to target all users, all educators, as opposed to just focusing on super users, which I think is critical. So that actually, I think is a really fascinating part of this story is that Asynchronous video did not become like educators have understood the power of video in the classroom long before Screencastify, right? Like this is an idea that this blended flipped classroom model that originated probably around like the turn of the century, right? And like the benefits theoretically were so clear to a small group of, of these pioneering educators, but they didn't have the hardware or the software to make it happen. Right. And so it kind of just lived in theory for almost a decade. And then the first thing, I think the first transformational thing here is Chromebooks, uh, which also are a device not intended for education, um, but that just kind of works so perfectly. Uh, but Chromebooks, due to their, to their cost and their ease of deployment and administration from an IT perspective, made it a perfect device for the classroom. So that solved the hardware piece of it. 
But the limitation of a Chromebook is you can't install any applications or download anything. So everything has to be in the browser. So it was halfway to kind of enabling video in the classroom. But Screencastify ended up being that, that final piece to solve the software problem. Once that was there, it just unlocked crazy, crazy growth. Um, it's super cool to see. And one thing that I think was happening naturally too is, you know, when folks initially started to see the value of video instruction, there was still a major coalition of people that thought that you could just give kids canned content and it would just work. And this kind of, I think, speaks to what you all recognized early in general, which is like, if you don't understand what's going on in classrooms, then you're probably going to make the mistake of selling some things that teachers know just don't work. And I remember vividly thinking, why am I going to make a video when I can just go find them? So I went and found them, professionally made videos, dropped them in front of my students, and their reactions blindsided me a little bit. You know, I found out quickly they were like frustrated that they had to listen to someone who wasn't me, started to doubt my own expertise in the classroom and my value that I brought into the into the world. They started to be like, there's no continuity. Like you're giving me one video and then another video and they don't really speak to each other particularly well and they're kind of disconnected from the curriculum that the school has. So you started to see come to life like the fundamental challenges of trying to take canned or already created content and then just give that to kids and say, hey, like, go ahead and learn this way. And it spoke to just how important it is for students to build relationships with teachers and to trust their teacher. And it's hard for a kid to trust their teacher when the voice that's teaching them the information isn't the voice of you, the educator. So it was so interesting that that started to happen at the same time too, where, you know, teaching through videos was starting to become popular in a way that was like, let's just go buy a package and then give it to kids. And very quickly, I think educators realized that's just not all that effective at scale. So then you all presented a unique value add. It was kind of a perfect storm. And I think it's really a special way to think about it. Something that folks really missed in that early phase. Uh, I did personally as well. I tried a number of those programs and tools and resources, and it just landed flat every single time. So it's a fascinating shift in general. Everyone at Screencastify believes that the single most limited resource in education is quality time between teacher and learner. And you don't have to throw money at that to, you know, you, you know it'd be great to have bigger budgets, of course, but it's, it's amazing how simple videos, it, it's almost too simple of a solution that you overlook it, right? But it's, it's amazing how this very, very simple medium can multiply the amount of quality time that, that teachers have with, with their students, whoever their students might be. Sometimes it's other teachers, sometimes it's administrators, sometimes it's parents, right? Um, but that is the limited resource. And, and that's what we really strive to, to maximize with our products. It's amazing you say that because every listener is going to be annoyed when I say this again, but I've always said that differentiation is the most overused and under-executed term in education. And I say every single time, the reason why it's under-executed is the only way you can effectively differentiate is if you can spend small group and individualized time with students. It's just, there's no other way to do it. You can't actually say, hey, I'm going to give you a differentiated experience 
but I'm going to do it in a whole group setting. It just doesn't functionally make that much sense, especially at scale. And you all talk about this idea of giving teachers time. I, I tell folks the most important data point we had in our control study with Johns Hopkins was when we asked educators whether they're able to work closely with each of their students during class. Only 19% of control educators said they could do that versus 86% of modern classroom educators. Wow. And I say every single time, like that is the data point that I am obsessed with because everything else works better when you can make that come to life. You can support students with trauma better. You can fill in kind of gaps in understanding better. You can make sure that you have strong relationships with kids. You can inspire. You can support kind of team building. All that happens in those moments. And if you don't have the time to do that, all that energy you're pouring into lesson planning, all that energy you're pouring into building these beautiful learning experiences aren't going to be as powerful because you missed out on the critical part. And it is amazing just how simple the idea of building a video to replace your lecture unleashes so much time, like an incredible amount of time, especially when you factor in how much time you lose with behavior management during those lectures. You know, where I taught, that was always the pain point for me, behavior management during lectures. Students would come in late. Students would be struggling to understand the concepts. They would complain for good reason because I wasn't meeting their needs. And then I was kind of in this battle, students versus me. And how I could make sure that everyone would just listen to the lessons that I was delivering that weren't particularly effective. And once I started replacing videos, my lectures with those videos, I was just like mystified by the fact that I had gained like 30 to 40% of my time came back to me every single day and an inordinate amount of time and an unbelievable opportunity for educators. So I love that you all think about it that way, unleashing teacher time. It's so, so powerful. And it's super aligned with what we think as, as an organization as well. I couldn't have said it better myself. So let's talk a little bit about the last 18 months. I mean, obviously a extremely traumatic and confusing time. Um, but one where the nature of the game is that folks have, have really started to leverage tech tools at a scale that we have never seen before. And I think a true silver lining of the moment is that I think it has empowered folks across our education system to start to think a little bit differently about teaching and learning and also really accelerate the kind of tech skill curve so that folks actually feel like they can dive into more innovative approaches to teaching and learning. Can you just share a little bit about like what's happened to your company and just like the scale over the course of the last 18 months? Yeah. I mean, so it, it actually, for us, it, it all started in February of 2020. The, the company was eight or nine people. And we were actually at a conference down in, we were at TCA down in Austin and we were doing our thing during the day. And at night we would come back to our hotel room and we had dozens and dozens and dozens of emails in our in our inbox from Hong Kong. And this was a time where I think Hong Kong had entered one of the first lockdowns and they were looking for support uh, on how to keep communication going while while students couldn't come into school. And we knew very little about COVID. Um, we knew very little about what was even happening over there, but we just knew we kind of had to support those schools. So we gave um, our 
unlimited version, our paid version uh, for free to, to all schools in Hong Kong at, at that time. So we actually spent our evenings like late into the night, just activating access for these Hong Kong schools. And, and unfortunately, as it started to spread, we saw more and more lockdowns in, in, in Asia and Southeast Asia at that, at that time. And we kind of knew we had to, to put a response plan together uh, to support those schools. What we did not anticipate was how quickly that would come over to the U.S. Um, we probably had a week's head start on some people just based on our experience there, but it happened so fast in, in, in those, you know, whatever it was, March 11th or 12th, where the dominoes started to fall. And really overnight, we just saw an order of magnitude increase in the number of people contacting us using Screencastify. Um, and it makes sense, right? Like educators were told on Friday that school was closed on Monday, but learning had to continue somehow. Um, and most of the districts and schools in the country and thousands of others around the world turned to Screencastify at the same time. So the it was just chaos at first. Again, we were nine people getting thousands and thousands of emails a day trying to support what was happening. My, I, my fiance, who has a full-time job at night, had, I had to ask her to, to respond to support tickets and help out customers. <laughs> it's, that's, she actually had a higher satisfaction score than I did on, on her responses. That's a true story. I don't know what that says about me. Um, love but it. it was just all, it was really like all hands on deck for a while. Um, and it probably took us a couple of months to even like think about what was happening beyond that day. Uh, we were just focused on like keeping the product going, reliable, up, answering emails, like being in touch and just trying to be there as, as much as we could. Um, and then in the summer is, is really when we kind of saw how, how, long-lasting this impact was going to be into the next school year. And uh, we had to really scale the company up to be able to, to handle the demand. Um, so we ended, just in terms of our headcount, we ended uh, 2020 at, at 50 employees. And, and, um, and today we had our 80th start and we're still, still going. I still think we're understaffed, but it, it has been a very, very wild ride. Um, it's been very fulfilling to, to, to help where we can, um, but it really has, in, in our perspective, accelerated the adoption, uh, particularly video in, in the classroom, by probably five to ten years, um, which um, has its pros and cons, right? But, but, but it, it is, it's been an amazing transformation to witness. Yeah, no, I mean, first of all, uh, and now explain, I remember when we were trying to get our like zoom package right when COVID had hit. And I remember being so confused because I was trying to reach out to zoom and like just trying to actually give them my money. And it was really difficult to get in touch with them initially. And I now have sympathy because you just explained to me that you put your fiance on responding to ticket duty. And that makes a ton of sense now because that was just like that much volume coming in. And I'm sure other tech players like that had a similar experience in different ways. So that's fascinating. Yeah. Now, talk to me a little bit about your vision and goal for Screencastify. And I think you've alluded to it a little bit, but I think now that so many users are using this, 
what is your your overarching vision as an organization um and you know how do you think that plays into how we can shift education for the better yeah i i, I definitely have alluded to it in, in a couple of different ways but you know i i mentioned that we all what well, we all believe that the that the most that the most limited resource is quality time between teacher and learner and our mission is just to maximize that for every teacher and learner around the world um, and the way we do it is is with asynchronous video and the the method in which that we, we execute it is just by simplifying it down to its core right like we are really 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 good reductionists um, we are not the best at you know, creating incredible video products that can do things that you've never seen video do before. We are very, very, very good at reducing it down to people who don't really care about video. And like, that's like kind of a, a, a point of pride for us is that we want to make video products for people who don't really care about video. Because uh, if we've done that, we've gotten out of our own way. Right. Like we haven't brought our opinion to the classroom. We haven't brought our opinion to instruction and curriculum. There's something wrong with that. That's just this is just our approach to kind of, like I said, getting out of, out of our own way and allowing teachers to do what we do best. But we do believe that every single teacher can be more powerful with asynchronous video. And as long as we can make that easier and easier and easier, we are moving closer and closer to our real vision. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really fascinating particularly this idea of like build build a tool for people who don't actually care that much about video because when i give educators advice on when they build instructional videos i tell them to focus on the research which is clear and compelling nine minutes or under six minutes ideally animations ideally if you can or have something moving on the screen if you can be involved in the screen in some way fabulous and when you think about the research it doesn't say things need to be pretty and perfect. It never says that any element of the instructional video needs to look like it was crafted in a professional studio. And one of the things I often say is blended learning doesn't need to be pretty. It needs to be personal. And I think ultimately most educators don't care all that much about the video other than the fact that the video has empowered them to not have to spend one-on-one and not empowered them to not to spend time at the front of the room and has empowered them to spend more one-on-one and small group time with kids. And I think so often the challenges of, of getting educators to use video effectively in the classroom is because they're such perfectionists. I was too, that it can be hard to say, Hey, it's not that big of a deal to make it perfect. Um, it's okay to have mistakes. That's part of the journey. And ultimately that six to nine minute instructional video is going to contribute to 60, 80 minutes of potential work time for your students. So don't spend two hours planning the six to nine minute part. Spend less time on that. Make sure it's efficient, effective, gets the job done, follows the research, and focus on what that actual learning experience is going to look like. Like what are kids literally going to be doing? How are they going to show their mastery? How are they going to be engaging with you, their peers, and all that good stuff? And I think that really resonates with educators because if you told educators that they had to obsess over that quality of that video every single time, it's just not going to be something that is sustainable. I wouldn't have been able to do it, and I don't think most educators would have been able to do it. And it goes back to that super user idea. There's certainly those super users that like make some of the most beautiful videos I've ever seen. In fact, the person who edits this wonderful podcast and is often a co-host, Zach Diamond, makes some of the most fantastic videos I've ever seen, but he's a video editor. He knows how to do that. 
but 99% of our users, and it sounds like you, your users, that's not the goal. The goal is just to make sure that they can use their time more effectively in the classroom and deliver something that is engaging and follows the research. And to do that, you don't need all that complicated a set of tools. Yeah. And you all have mastered that. The, the hardest video you'll ever make is the first one. And then it just becomes, it's like a downward, you know, sloping hockey stick after that, where you really get comfortable with it. What you're, what you're talking about reminds me of something we've actually been discussing internally recently uh, with, a, with a potential feature, which is that, that we've seen elsewhere in, in the video world, which is like automatically removing filler words from your video, the ums and the ahs, uh, and which hopefully will happen in this podcast. <laughs> uh, but you know, if, if you're making a video for your company or for a sales prospect or for your customers in some way, you might want to do that to make you sound more professional and more polished. But I'm not convinced that you want to do that for your students because you say ums and ahs in real life. And I don't know if, if, if it's a good thing for teachers to prevent or present a, 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 a kind of fake and idyllic version of themselves on video. Now, if we can show that that actually would make help teachers get points across quick, quicker and more effectively, that's a totally different story. Right? Like that would really support what we're doing. We're not going to do it just to polish things, though, for, for an audience that, that really wants the authentic version of the star of the video. Totally. I used to tell people all the time, like if, if you have a, a little kid who cries in the background or a dog that barks or the fire engine comes by, just say it. Like kids actually would perk up when that happened. Yeah. Like it was almost like an engagement tool. Um, I used to same thing about mistakes. Like if there was a mistake in the video, I would oftentimes either embed a question in the video or I'd put on their guided notes like, can you catch my mistake? And it just made that video a little bit more engaging. So I 100% agree, right? There's nothing about these videos that need to be perfect. Again, they need to be personal. Like kids have seen a million professional videos. That's not going to captivate their attention. You are as the educator, which is supported by the research, right? Educators are the most important factor in student learning outside of the student themselves. So it's amazing. We are incredibly aligned on this. And I think it comes through with the way that you all have constructed your product. I want to... um I want to give a minute or two now as we're almost out of time here. I want to give you the space to essentially share more about the product with the listeners and just like how they can access it. I mean, I would imagine that the vast majority of people on here um, know exactly where to go and what the tool is. But if there's anything, any updates or anything you want to share about Screencastify, now is a perfect time. So feel free to. Yeah, well, the, the, the fastest way to learn more is just to go to screencastify.com. Uh, what a lot of people don't know about Screencastify is we do have three products. We're, we're really known for our flagship product, which is called Record. It's our Chrome extension, and we believe it's the easiest way to create a screen or webcam video for your audience. But we do have two more products that um, I think are, are, are really exciting because they're doing the same thing that our, our Chrome extension did, but in a sort of a different for a different action. And the second one is, is Edit. It's a uh, it's a browser-based video editor that uh, that we released last year. And I think that it's a video editor for people who have never video edited before and want to polish up their videos and add text to make them more accessible or blur out sensitive information and really just prepare a video for production, if you will. Um, so we've, we've put a ton of effort into making that the simplest possible video editing experience that, of course, works in your browser and on the Chromebook. 
And then Submit is our newest product, which is a very easy way for teachers to create video assignments to make their students the creators. So you send your students a magic link, they click the link, it starts recording, they click stop, and the video gets sent to the teacher's Google Drive. And so I actually am so, so excited about getting more students involved as video creators, as a alternative or primary medium for those that aren't as comfortable writing or just want to share their learning um, by talking through uh, by talking through their their thinking or, or showing uh, some, some showing their work uh, to, to their teachers or to their peers so I'm very very excited about um, what submit can enable when it's really used more widely in, in the classroom I love it the tools the functionality getting the kids involved one of my favorite classrooms I ever observed was a classroom in Pennsylvania, one of our best partners, Bellwood Antis School District, and it was an elementary classroom. And I walk in and I'm getting ready to watch uh, the model in action. And the first thing I see is a group of students on the Aspire to do lesson, which in our model is the extension lessons that kids can do. And there's two kids recording an instructional video on how to solve the problems for their peers. And I was just like, I almost melted when I saw that in action. It's one of the coolest things. Um, Well, James, this has been super interesting. I thoroughly enjoyed hearing the story. It is fascinating. I love hearing about things that go viral that really just focus on the user experience and what users need and and the ideas that you all kind of think about and, and hold true at Screencastify around making sure that A, we give educators as much time as possible to spend time with students is so, so powerful and B that you can't fake it for teachers. You got to figure out what they actually need and give it to them. And what that often means is cleaning a tool so that it's really easy to use. Those are super powerful. It comes through with your product and I thank you for creating it and continuing to support educators across the country. So thanks for jumping on James. I really appreciate it. Kareem. Thanks for having me. And folks, as always, you can access our content at www.modernclassrooms.org. If you're looking to learn our model, you should go to learn.modernclassrooms.org. We'll be back at it next week. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org. And you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students in schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Podcast.